And good morning, church family. Certainly a joy to bear witness to Katie's baptism and the ordination of our deacons and elders. And it's my pleasure to also make you aware of one other exciting thing that happened this weekend, this past Friday and Saturday. Uh, the 100 or so churches in our presbytery gathered together in Darlington, South Carolina. And on Friday night, uh, our lead teaching pastor, David Beatty, uh, gave the, the sermon to everyone in attendance. And then on, on Saturday morning, we were able to witness the culmination of a journey that began six years ago for David Holcomb. Uh, some of you might know this, but uh, prior to coming on staff to give leadership to our discipleship ministries, David Holcomb was uh, actually overseeing operations for a large global packaging company. And uh, on the side, David and his wife Christy were leading this flourishing small group, and he had started this thing called Run for God, which had like 100 participants its first season. And so it was really obvious that uh, David had a lot of passion and gifting as it related to helping others grow in their faith. And when he came on staff in 2014, he also began taking classes uh, so he could earn his Master of Divinity degree, which he did this past May. Uh, but it, it's sort of like how um, graduating law school doesn't make you a lawyer. You, you still have to pass the bar. In a similar way, a graduating seminary doesn't make you a pastor. You still have to go through ordination. And this past Saturday, this long process came to an end for David Holcomb. You can see here that uh, he, he passed with flying colors. And uh, if you see him around, he's not here right now. He's teaching an equipping class in our community room. But when you see David, would you congratulate him and, uh, and join us on March 1st, Sunday evening. We'll have a special ordination service for him. I also I want to thank those of you who prayed for Martin Harrison and Brian Thompson and me the week prior while we had the opportunity to teach in Myanmar. For the past five years, our church has hosted a conference for pastors and evangelists and other church leaders in this predominantly Buddhist country. I'm going to show you a picture that I took from the, the rooftop of our hotel. I watched one morning as a man uh, brought breakfast and set it before this statue with the hope that this gesture might somehow benefit him spiritually. And while the desire was certainly there on my part uh, to share with him how Jesus offers the assurance that, that he desires, the language barrier was just too great. But, but through this partnership that we have, uh, through this conference, our church has a role in, in coming alongside those who are able to share the good news with this man and many others like him. Uh, as you might imagine, uh, Myanmar is not exactly uh, a wealthy country. The uh, church budgets there are very meager. But through your giving, what we're able to do as a church is we're able to, to offset the cost of this conference, which enables these participants from all over the world, to, or from all over that country, rather, to, to come together, to, to experience fellowship, to be built up, and to be refreshed so that they can return to their villages more equipped to fulfill the Great Commission. And I'm just convinced that one of the best ways that we can promote the, the spread of the gospel in places like Myanmar is uh, to come alongside these indigenous leaders in the majority world countries and, and to support them, to train them, to equip them, to come alongside them with resources 
And I just want to thank you for, for praying for us while we were away for your part in this. Uh, the church there was really encouraged to know that they have brothers and sisters in Christ halfway around the world that stand with them in their work. And so that was, that was a wonderful experience. Thank you. Well, as we turn our attention now uh, to God's Word, I'll invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Our passage today is going to answer a very important question that will not only help us understand the overarching story of the Bible, but also our own place in that story. This passage will give us insight to the inner workings of a relationship. Now, I know that every relationship is unique, but in every relationship, each person will contribute something. Every person is going to bring something to the table for the relationship to work. Say, for instance, you have two college students who agree to be roommates. Well, when that happens, usually what happens next is they begin to divvy up responsibilities. One might say, okay, if, uh, if you're going to bring a, a fridge to the table, I'll take care of the microwave. Or if you're bringing the coffee pot, I'll, I'll take care of the stereo or, or the TV. With, with your college roommate, this is a bit of a process. This is a dialogue. Uh, but guys, when we get married, uh, this is all decided for us, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And... Um, <laughs> If you think you're bringing your couch to the table, um, you've got another thing coming. Your, your um, decor is in kitchen utensils. There's a lot of things that you're not going to get to bring to the table. But uh, you know, be that as it may, in, in, in every good marriage, I, I think we recognize that, that each person does contribute something. You know, there, there's a divvying up of responsibilities. Maybe one cooks and another does the dishes afterwards, or one takes care of the yard and another cleans the inside, or you know, one does the grocery shopping and one helps the kids with the homework. But instead of thinking about our relationship with a roommate or a spouse or a business partner, let's think for a minute about our relationship with God. How does that relationship work? In the relationship God wants to have with us, what does He expect us to do? And then what does he offer to do? Said another way, what does God want us to contribute? And then what does God contribute to the relationship? What does each bring to the table? Well, in Genesis 15, we see the answer to that question. The chapter neatly divides into these two encounters between God and Abraham that mirror each other. In both encounters, we'll see that the Lord comes and makes a promise to Abraham, and then Abraham questions the Lord. And when we'll see the Lord reassures Abraham by a symbolic act. And with that outline in mind, look with me now at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, at this point, uh, God had not yet changed Abram's name to Abraham, but because we all refer to him as Abraham today, that's how I am going to refer to him as well. And from reading the previous chapter, chapter 14, we know that Abraham is at a precarious position at this point in his life. He has uh, just mustered a small force, and he has gone and rescued his nephew Lot, who was taken captive uh, by these uh, neighboring kings who had uh, spun up an army and formed an alliance. And uh, 
here's Abram. He's returned back to where he's living. He's, uh, he's all alone in this foreign land. He doesn't have the, the inherent protection that comes from a large family or a clan. And we could understand why he would be feeling very vulnerable in this moment. He might wonder if these neighboring kings are going to rally the troops, if they're going to stand up an even larger army, if they're going to come looking for Abraham and try and settle the score. And God comes to Abraham in this moment and he says, uh, fear not, I'm your shield. In other words, I'm going to stand between you and any harm. Abraham, I'm going to protect you. I've got your defense covered. And, and your reward is going to be very great. It's a nice promise, isn't it? And it's so interesting to see how Abraham responds here. Essentially what he says is, God, I'm having a hard time believing you. Because some of your other promises haven't exactly panned out. You see, Abraham has his heart set on this promise that God made him back in chapter 12. It's a threefold promise. God came to him and said, Abram, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you the father of a, of, of a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. And then through you, I'm going to extend blessing to, to all the nations of the earth. And Abraham has, has latched onto this promise. In response to this promise, Abraham has, has left his family and he's traveled all the way to Canaan. And guess what he discovers when he gets to Canaan? There's people living in the land. And they're not exactly eager to give up the land. The land of inheritance is occupied. Not only that, but we see that there's a famine in the land. Which isn't exactly a, a glide path to blessing if you have a bunch of livestock to feed. So we're 0 for 2 on the first two promises. What about the other one? God's, God's promise to, to make Abram a great nation, to give him many descendants. Well, that promise hasn't come to fruition either. And this is the complaint that Abraham makes before God in verses 2 and 3. He's, he's still childless. They're struggling with infertility. It's a painful issue for him, just like it is for many today. And we see that this man, who's known as a, as a great pillar of faith, we see that he's human, just like us. Both times that Abraham opens his mouth in this chapter, here in verses 2 and 3, and then again in verse 8, we see Abram questions God. His present situation stands in tension with God's earlier promises. He hasn't experienced what God has promised, and he's wondering, God, is your, is your word really going to come true? Can I really count on it? Maybe you can relate. Maybe there are times you felt like crying out, God, you, know, you said you would never leave me or forsake me. But I got to tell you, God, I'm feeling all alone. I'm feeling deserted. I feel abandoned. Or maybe you would say, God, you, you, you say that you give strength to the weary and increase the power of the weak. But I got to tell you, I'm not feeling it right now. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed. This, this situation is more than I can bear. This is more than I can handle. Or, or, or God, doesn't your word say that 
You, you have plans to, to, to prosper us and not to harm us, plans to give us a hope and a future. But God, i got to tell you, this circumstance I'm in, this one that I've been in, this one that's going on like nine months, 10 months, 11 months, maybe years, God, in, in this circumstance, I feel hopeless. And like Abram, you're wondering, God, are, are your promises really going to come true? God, is your word really reliable? Maybe you've asked a question like that. It, it, and it's so interesting to see here how God responds to Abraham. What's interesting is that God doesn't really tell Abraham anything new. We see God just simply comes and he reiterates the promise he made earlier. He tells Abraham, he says, oh no, no, you're, you're going to father a son. That's going to be your heir. It won't be this Eliezer fellow. And then God tells Abraham to look up at the night sky and to survey all the stars to take those in because that's how numerous his offspring is going to be. This isn't new info. In Genesis chapter 13, God told Abraham he was going to make his descendants like, like the dust of the earth. All God does here in this moment is he just, he just reassures Abraham that his word is going to come to pass. He simply reminds him of his previous promises. He keeps giving Abraham his word. He brings his word. And when we doubt, when we struggle, when we wrestle with God, this is what God wants to do for us if we'll let him. He wants to bring us his word. And, and he brings us his word. He brings us his promise through the scriptures, through the teaching of his word, through the singing of his word, through the encouragement of other Christians. He brings it to us through the celebration of the sacraments, which, by the way, are these very physical and tangible acts that God has given us because he knew we were going to need reminded of his promises when we celebrate these things, we're reminded of his promises. And, and you know where we experience all these reassurances? Right here at church. And, and yet I've noticed this tendency that sometimes when people struggle with God, when they wrestle, there's this tendency to, to disconnect, to pull away. And I'm, I'm just observing here that you know, if Abraham, this great model of faith, struggled at some points in his journey, that we're probably going to struggle too. And if that's the case, then I, I just encourage us to remain connected to the place where God's word is being poured out and where he's wanting to bring his reassurances, where he can address our concerns. Let's see how Abraham responds to God's word coming to him. Look with me now at verse 6. It says, And he believed the Lord, and he, that's God, counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believes the Lord, and God counts it to him as righteousness. We see here that Abraham responds in faith. For the vast majority of this chapter, we see that God is the one speaking, God's the one acting, but sandwiched right here, in, in, in between these two encounters, we see Abraham does this one thing. He makes this one contribution to the relationship. He trusts God. He, he comes to the conclusion that God is reliable. 
And as we read on, we, we, we see that Abraham wavers in his faith. We, we know that his faith isn't perfect. But the passage here isn't stressing the intensity or the fervency of Abraham's faith. That's not what's emphasized. What's important is the object of his faith. He trusts in God. And as a result, God counts, or we could say that he credits, righteousness to Abraham. In other words, God declares Abraham to be acceptable before him. God says, Abraham, you you have right standing in my eyes. And this verse is so important for understanding how a relationship with God works. It appears four more times in the Bible. In, In a relationship with God, how does it work? What does God bring to the table? Well, God brings his word. He brings promises. In fact, it's his word that he initiates relationship. And what do we see Abraham bringing to the table? What does Abraham contribute? I mean, not much, really. He just brings faith. He brings trust. And God says, that'll be enough. Now, in the second half of the chapter, we see that that God speaks to Abraham again. In the second encounter, as much like the first, God comes and he, he reiterates a promise to Abraham. He says this, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And quite naturally, Abraham responds back, even in faith, he's still addressing God as a sovereign one. He says, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? In other words, God, help my unbelief. And in response to Abraham's request for a sign, God reassures Abraham through a formal covenant. You, you can think of a covenant as a, as a formal promise. It's, it's, a, it's a solemn promise between two parties. It's, it's a serious agreement. Now, now, in our day, when people into a, enter into a serious agreement, a signature is what seals the deal. If you want to hire a contractor to come and, like, you know, do some remodeling work in your kitchen, what are you going to require before any work begins? A signed contract, right? Because it's the signature on the paper that, that, that makes the agreement a, a formal, legally binding contract. Even at a wedding ceremony, uh, after the bride and groom say, I do, what happens? You have to sign the marriage license, don't you? The bride and the groom sign, the minister signs, and then two witnesses sign. And, and, it's, and it's their signature on that document. It's their, it's their putting their name down on paper that, that makes their entering into the union official. It's what signifies the relationship has really occurred. Well, back in the ancient Near East, you didn't ratify a covenant uh, by inking your name. Instead, you would take an animal, you would slay it, uh, you would cut it in half, and you would lay the pieces on the ground, and then both parties would pass through the dismembered animal. And, And by walking between the pieces of the animal, both individuals were essentially saying, May my flesh be laid on the ground like this if I break the terms of the covenant. May may the same thing happen to me if I don't fulfill 
the pledge, if I violate it, if I break my word, you're invoking a curse on themselves. And when God tells Abraham to get these animals, there are no additional instructions because I think Abraham knew exactly what was going on. He figured this was a covenant ratification ceremony. But the ceremony doesn't go down the way Abraham would have anticipated. After preparing the animals, we see that Abraham's role in this ceremony comes to a close. And the Lord causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And God comes to him, his word comes again, and he says, Know for sure, Abraham, that eventually your descendants are going to inherit this land. But it's going to be 400 years because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. And by way of an aside, I think uh, this offers some insight as to why God would sanction the killing of the, the Canaanites When Joshua and the Israelites would enter the promised land many years later, it would seem that God doesn't arbitrarily come and say, you know, I just kind of prefer person X to person Y, so I'm going to take person X's land and I'm going to give it to person Y. In this verse, God seems to be saying, uh, it would be wrong for me to give you this land right now. But here's what I know I know that in 400 years, the, the sin of the people living in the land is going to be so heinous, it's going to reach a point of no return. And uh, the wickedness in the land is going to merit my judicial punishment. Now, I, I realize you probably still have some questions about this. And I want you to save up all your hard questions, and I want you to bring them back in six weeks, because Pastor David has promised to do a sermon on this. So, <laughs> I'm off the hook, all right? <laughs> six weeks. <laughs> But as we read on in the chapter, we, we, we see that, that after God's word comes and reveals this to Abraham, something stunning happens. In verse 17, we see this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What's going on here? Well, these, these symbols are manifestations of God's presence. This is more or less the same description given when God descends on top of Mount Sinai years later. This reminds us of the pillar of cloud and fire that would guide the Israelites through the wilderness. And what's really staggering here is not just that God's presence shows up, it's that God goes down the aisle himself. God passes between the pieces of the animals alone. This is a solitary act. What God doesn't do is say, hey, Abraham, get up. I'm going to need you to pass through now, too. Now, think about this. This would be like going to the attorney's office to close on a home and being told to put away your pen. What what God is doing here is he's making an unconditional covenant. Through his solitary actions, God is making a one-sided deal. Notice there are no terms, there's no conditions, there's, there's no stipulations imposed upon Abraham in order for him to receive these promises, the benefits of the covenant. No, God passes through himself, he passes through for Abraham. God contributes everything and then God binds himself to do as he's promised. In this covenant that God made with Abraham, it looks forward to a better covenant. One that would bring blessing 
to all the people of the earth. And where do we see this covenant? Well, on the night before his crucifixion, while celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus took the cup and he said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus wanted his followers to know that once again, God was making a covenant. And the beneficiary of this new covenant would be the whole world. And we see that this time, instead of the blood of animals, Jesus would spill his blood. Jesus would give his very life to enact the covenant. And in the same way that darkness fell upon Abraham, Mark's gospel tells us that as Jesus hung on the cross, that a darkness came over the whole land. And in the same way that God passed through these pieces alone, Jesus would go to the cross alone. He would be abandoned by all of his followers. And he would pass through death alone for the sins of the world. Once again, we see that God contributes everything. And the promises of the covenant can be extended because of his solitary actions. Because Jesus took upon himself the curse or the punishment of sin for the, for the whole world, that means we find ourselves in the same position as Abraham. Once again, God is bringing promises to the table. He's bringing his word to us. He, he's initiating relationship through his word. And the promises of this new covenant are many. They're numerous. God promises to forgive us our sins. He promises to clothe us with his righteousness. He promises to give us an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. He promises to bless us in the heavenly realms. He, he, he promises that he's going to work out all things for our good. He promises that he's going to dry every tear from our eyes. He promises that we'll spend forever with him. And that he'll be our God and we'll be his people. He promises to give us eternal life. And that's just not a, a life that doesn't end. That speaks about the type of life, the quality of life. It's an abundant and a full life because we'll be partakers of the very life that Jesus has. God promises that we will enjoy the all-surpassing fellowship, the perfect fellowship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We'll be partakers of that. We'll enter into that. And to receive the promises that God offers us in His Word through this new covenant, we need to bring to the table the very same thing that Abraham brought to the table. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then in Romans chapter 4, we read this. But these words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. God's going to count righteousness to us when we believe in Jesus. God comes to us this morning and he says, trust me. He says, I want, I want you to find the promises of Jesus trustworthy. And if we do that, that will be enough. And like Abraham, we will receive a great reward.
I want to ask you, where is your trust? What are, what are you looking to, to be found acceptable before God? Is it in the fact that you've led a good life, that you've led a decent life, that you've been a good fellow, that you've been a model citizen? Is it in, in, the, in the fact that, that maybe you prayed a prayer when you were a teen in camp, or you walked down an aisle when you were a kid, or is it in the fact that maybe you're not as bad as some of the people that you know, or you always tried hard you know, to live by the golden rule? If, if that's what you're banking on, to be found acceptable before God, then what you're saying is that you're looking to your own actions, you're looking to your own works, you're looking to your contributions to find righteousness. And, and I want you to know there's another way. God, through his word, is saying, I'm making, I'm making a better covenant. I'm bringing you a better promise. I'm offering a better way. And if you want to believe the promise that he gave his own son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, then you can receive the reward that he's offering. The question is, will you consider that promise trustworthy? Will you accept the fact that Jesus has done everything, that he's contributed everything? And will you bring faith, will you bring trust to the table and enter into a relationship with God? And if you've never done that before, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for your willingness to bring about a relationship with us. God, I thank you that you're a, you're a patient God and you're willing to deal with people like me who find it difficult to believe in you at times. And I thank you that, that you're so patient that you would keep reassuring us, that you would keep bringing us your word. Thank you that you would keep confirming your promises to us. And we thank you for the covenant that you made that, that, that cost you everything and it cost us nothing. And God, I pray for the person here who has never trusted in you or a person who's misplaced their trust recently and needs to reaffirm their faith in you. And if that's you, you can just pray a prayer like this. You can say, God, I thank you for sending your son Jesus who lived the life I could never live and who bore the punishment for my sins. Jesus, I believe that you died in my place and that you rose again that one day, you're going to come back. You're going to come for me. And I acknowledge you to be my Savior and Lord. And I want to live for you all of my days. Amen.